Welcome to the Acton Institute Events Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, Executive Producer. In this Acton Lecture Series program from November 5th, 2020, I spoke with David French, Senior Editor at The Dispatch, about the outcomes of the 2020 election and his new book, Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. In Divided We Fall, French surveys the landscape of a politically and culturally polarized America, examining the true dimensions and dangers of this widening ideological gap. Just two days after the 2020 election, French analyzed the impacts the election outcomes to the extent that they were known could have on an increasingly divided and tribalistic nation, with each faction believing their distinct cultures and liberties are being threatened by an escalating violent opposition. To learn more about upcoming and previous Acton Institute events, please visit our website at acton.org events. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Institute Events is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Really thrilled to have you for uh, this conversation, this Acton Lecture Series entitled Divided We Fall, America After the 2020 Election. And we're thrilled to be joined for this conversation by David French. Uh, David is the senior ed- is a senior editor at The Dispatch, a columnist at Time, and a former senior writer at National Review, a graduate of Harvard Law School. David is a former lecturer at Cornell Law School and a former constitutional litigator who served as a senior counsel for the Alliance Defending Freedom and the American Center for Law and Justice. David is a former major in the United States Army Reserve. In 2007, he deployed to Iraq with the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment, where he earned a Bronze Star. A best-selling author, David's most recent book, Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation, was released earlier this year. And we have copies of David's book, Divided We Fall, available for purchase in the Acton Bookshop for $19.99, you can find it there at shop.acton.org. David, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So I think it's important for uh, posterity for me to say that we are having this conversation on November 5th at noon Eastern time. Uh, we said, you know, we're talking about the outcomes from the election and want to note the date and time because there's still a lot that we don't know as of now. So if you're in the future and listening to this, this is us talking about what we know right now. But I think we have seen a lot over the last two days. And to kick it off, David, what do you think we've learned about where our country is at once the polls started to close at seven o'clock Eastern time on Tuesday? Yeah, I mean, I think we learned that our country is reaffirmed we we knew this going in it just reaffirmed how incredibly polarized our country is and and i think you know look i i in my book i go through uh into deep amounts of research showing how we're polarized on religious lines on ideological lines we're polarized culturally i mean we don't even watch the same kinds of entertainment um we're increasingly living separate lives and it's funny, uh, Eric, I kind of got, I got distracted by the polls 
you know, so here I've done all of this result on polarization being deep and enduring and negative polarization, for example, being sort of the primary driver of American politics, where you vote for your candidate, not necessarily because you love your candidate, but because they're not the other guy. Uh, and both parties are captured by this. And then I, you know, I looked at these 538 averages that were saying, you know, nine point uh, Biden victory and poll after poll after poll after poll repeating that. And I kind of got distracted by the like shiny 538 object and, and forgot, you know, all of this deep polarization research that I just put in the book. And so uh, I should have been the least surprised person in America when it turns out that a lot of the polling was wrong at the, and these deep divides have manifested themselves once again and yet another extremely, extremely close election. And, and Eric, what I would say in particular that really reaffirms how deeply divided we are is that you have seen stability in this polarization, you've seen stability, for example, in Donald Trump's support and his in his approval rating, in spite of an enormous amount of volatility in world and national events. I mean, in previous presidencies, big volatility in world and national events results in big swings in approval rating. I mean, as recently as George W. Bush, we can see that. But we've had huge volatility, just especially in this last year, at the same time that we've had enormous amounts of stability, which indicates a truly entrenched tribalism. So you, you brought up the polls. I mean, we don't need to get into a deep dive on all of that. But I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious what that in and of itself says about our country, that we've been relying a lot on data. And I work in a digital marketing space where we're supposed to do data-driven analysis and data-driven everything in terms of how we approach human beings who are yeah. actual flesh and blood human beings with their own thoughts, their own feelings, their own intentions. Um, what do you think the inability of us to use data, or at least seeming inability now to use data to assess these things says about how we'll talk about politics in the future. Are we going to move to more of a human narrative-driven analysis of things? And, and if we are, I mean, that can be unreliable as well. It absolutely can be unreliable. I mean, you know, I think the demise of the polling industry and the and sort of the, I mean, the, the, the torpedo below the waterline that much of the polling industry has taken between 2016 and 2020. Interestingly, 2018, they were much more in line, but between 2016 and 2020, you know, some people are exulting in that. I think that's just bad news because one of the things that you, one of the uh, virtues of data is that data can actually help you begin to settle arguments. Now, it's not to say that um, all data is now bad. There are different kinds of data. For example, a voting result, an actual hard count of a vote is data we can trust. An exit poll, which is trying to provide us with a reflection of who voted and why, which is not measured in the hard count, is much more um, subjective and much less trustworthy. So there's still forms of data that you can absolutely, you can rely on it's just, it seems that those forms of data are less and less, and often, honestly, more and more proprietary. In other words, you know, Facebook possesses an enormous amount of data that uh, we do not possess, uh, that it, you know, will, will share as it pleases. 
Um, but you know, this idea that we can operate from a common set of facts is diminishing. And, and I think that this polling debacle is just bad. I mean, I think there are sometimes people who sort of exult in, um, the humiliation of institutions they may or may not like, uh, or they may, they don't like, but this is a institution that we kind of need to at least be reasonably accurate. It, it helps us gauge so very many aspects of our politics. And if we're at sea on it, you know, what are we left with? You know, Facebook engagements, Google searches, boat parades, all of these things sort of have their own um, uh, rather obvious deficiencies. You mentioned institutions. Do you think this is just the latest example of we're living right now in what is effectively a low trust society? So without getting into polling methodology or anything like that, um, would it be fair, in your opinion, to think that we don't trust each other and we're not giving honest answers to each other because we don't know who we can trust in a hyperpolarized and and really vitriolic time? You know, here is an empirical statement that I think we don't even need any poll to verify, and that is we don't trust each other. I mean, this is about the most obvious and true statement about American politics and American culture that you can make right now. And low now there's a difference in my view between healthy skepticism and just complete mistrust. You know, healthy skepticism is the kind of thing that makes you try to test claims once, twice, three times to see if they're true, run them through sort of that common sense filter. But the level of distrust that we're feeling now is essentially almost along the lines of person X tells me something, I'm going to do the opposite. Um, you know, one of the one of the areas in which you see the consequences of distrust as opposed to healthy skepticism is and our cultural response to the coronavirus pandemic. You know, this is a, a novel coronavirus that comes into this country. We don't know a huge amount about it, which means we have to study the heck out of it. And I remember writing all the way back in March that a, this pandemic requires a high trust response and a very low trust time. And so that means basically anything that we're told, a huge segment of the population is just gonna say, no, like the mask, the mask debate. The mask debate is a product of a broken political culture, one that says, I'm automatically not going to trust something that comes from uh, a community or a segment of the American body politic that I dislike. Or we're heading, going to be heading shortly into the vaccine debate as well. A lot of these things are coming from an almost reflexive refusal to accept anything that comes from an institution or a person or set of people and institutions that we don't like. And uh, it is, it's harming our nation, it's harming our culture. We need to be, as citizens, healthy skeptics, but reflexively oppositional, that's not thought, that's just, that's just plain old partisanship. How do we balance those things? So I, um, there's the, famous Seymour Martin Lipset example of Americans who, people living in the colonies at the time of the Revolutionary War who were royalists or loyalists went to Canada. And those who were supportive of the revolution either came to or stayed in the colonies. Then 200 years later, both Canada and the United States say, we're moving to the metric system. And Canada says, okay, fine. And the United (laughs) States says, no, we're not going to do that. 
And that is kind of the that American exceptionalist, rightly understood attitude that says, you're telling me to do this. Who are you? Who says? How do we balance that part of it that really has made America such a remarkable country with what we're seeing now and what you just discussed that says someone who says they're an expert on this tells me I should do it? Who are they to tell me I'm going to do the opposite? <laughs> yeah, I've heard that that phenomenon that you just described as sort of like a version of folk libertarianism. Um, you know, the, the don't tell me what to do mindset, you know, look, I mean, it's the flag that says, don't tread on me, right? It's, you know, any, any virtue has often carries with it the potential for vice. So a person who's stubbornly independent minded can just be stubborn. Um, you know, a person who is, uh, sort of an individualist can become, uh, impervious to reason, uh, so all of these virtues have to be tempered and all of these characteristics have to be tempered by wisdom. Um, anything, I would say anything that is just sheer, pure reflexive. It's if one of your warning signs is if what you're doing is reflexive or if what we're seeing happen is just purely reflexive. Um, our reflexes need to be tempered with reason. We have to think through these things and, and I think one part of the spirit of our age is we have a lot of incentives not to, especially if you're a person with a public voice, um, being reflexive, especially if you're reflexive in a partisan way, is a very good way to garner a larger audience. If you can be, what's the military phrase, firstest with the mostest, <laughs> so to speak, that's a virtue when it comes to applying military force to a defensive line, you know, to the, to the enemy's defense. Um, it is not a virtue when it comes to public commentary. Firstest with the mostest often means most unreasonable or most wrong or most inflammatory. But there's this relentless pressure to bring that to bear. Um, and so that that's, you know, I am, you know, I've been accused of being excessively libertarian. Um, but all of these impulses need to be tempered by reason. And also a degree of grace, an understanding that often, you know, what we believe of as a malign force on the other side is often a, a, another human being struggling to do a tough job in good faith. Our own uh, Acton's own Jordan Baller had um, a, a good message the other day was that stop assuming people who voted for the other person did so for the worst possible reasons. <laughs> right, um, exactly. So you, you're talking there about uh, both virtue and wisdom and reason and grace to what extent is does faith need to play a role in that as well or by counterexample, what role does the decline in faith in america in the 21st century mean to that when we see the rise of the nuns and o-n-e-s nuns people who claim no religious affiliation and thus seem to be investing so much more into politics as a way to feel a part of something larger than themselves. You know, I, I, I think I'm a, I, I am somebody, and I, I focus on this in my book, um, especially in the last chapter, about this concept of ordered liberty this, the, that says, look, I mean, the, the, there is a social compact here. The role of the government as 
idealized in the in the uh, Declaration of Independence is we're endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And governments are instituted among men to preserve these liberties. But then as John Adams points out in the flip side, and what I think is one of the most single most important documents in the early American founding era, his letter to the Massachusetts militia, he says, our constitution, this is the famous language, our constitution was made for a moral and religious people. It's wholly inadequate for the governance of any other. But I'd encourage you to read the whole thing because it says a, um, what it says is that there is a, uh, a real um, danger that to not to vice taking over the American people, that our constitution can't handle widespread vice. It cannot handle, I believe that the phrase is, I don't have it right in front of me, but more uh, avarice and ambition and greed will go through the cords of our constitution like a whale going through a net. So there is an absolute need for morality in the American public for this system to work. The, the government should protect liberty and the people should exercise those rights for towards virtuous ends through virtuous means. That's how it works. Now we know that government will not perfectly protect rights and people will not perfectly exercise those rights. But the greater sort of an atmosphere of lawlessness and immorality spreads throughout our country, the less our system of government by its very design and conception is able to handle it. Now, one thing I would say is um, I think that the key word there is moral. I mean, you and I both know that there's a lot of religious people and a lot of religious institutions um, that have not really upheld their part of the bargain. And you and I both know people who don't have any faith, who belong to the NONESs, who are people of high integrity and morality. Um, I, you know, I'm a, uh, evangelical. I, I can't remember a time when I didn't believe in Jesus. I have like one of the most boring conversion stories possibly <laughs> imaginable. And I believe strongly in the value and the virtue of faith to inculcate and perpetuate uh, a pro, you know, a, a, a virtuous morality. I believe in that strongly. I don't think that faith does that exclusively. Uh, but I, without question, I think the other flip side of your article of your uh, question was, so what happens if people replace a faith that they used to have with something else with politics, for example, uh, what happens when politics takes the place of faith? And again, I know people who are NONES as nuns who really are deeply, deeply, deeply involved in politics and are quite, quite virtuous and great and, and um, high integrity folks. I also know a lot of people who put politics at the center of their existence, who have really adopted this take no prisoners, the ends justifies the means uh, system of morality that's, that's tearing at our social fabric. So I think the very concept of ordered liberty requires the government to protect liberty and the individual to exercise that liberty uh, through virtuous means towards virtuous ends. And that's fraying. I mean, that that social compact is fraying in this country. To continue on that, you mentioned earlier with regard to our polarization that you know we we don't have a lot of common space anymore. We don't have a lot of commonalities. We're um, we're not only paying attention to different political parties and candidates, we're watching different entertainment, but we're not just doing that. We're also watching the news and politics as if it is entertainment. Yeah. What role is that, you know, 
entertainmentization, if that even is a word, of the way that we engage in our civic life playing in pulling us apart? Oh, it's playing. I think it's playing a huge role. I mean, you know, the bottom line is we're getting to a point where millions upon millions of Americans, not a majority, of course, we, we can talk about what the majority is actually up to, but millions upon millions of the most politically engaged Americans are quite honestly spending more time watching, say, cable news than they're spending watching football <laughs> or basketball or streaming the latest show on Netflix. I mean, this is it isn't just it's almost beyond entertainment at this point. It's almost, a, it's a point of, it's a, it's a um, aspect of sort of almost like spiritual solace and reinforcement. Um, somebody the other day I was, I was uh, in a discussion described it as if people who settle down for that evening in front of the television, it's almost as if they feel a weight come off and they're finally with their people. They're finally sort of surrounded by their tribe, but their tribe is coming through that television. And, you know, you talk to pastors and they will say, I don't have, you know, everyone's saying, hey, pastor, why don't you, um, you know, talk to your congregation more about politics and sort of how as a Christian to view politics. And they say, I don't, I don't have nearly as many touch points with my own congregation as primetime cable news does. Sp my congregation is spending far more time with primetime cable news than they're spending with me. I feel like I'm holding back a tsunami <laughs> um, of, you know, there's a tsunami of information and I'm the, you know, the ripple in the pond. And, and I do think that there is an unhealthy version of what you might call a, becoming a political hobbyist. Um, and there's been some interesting uh, analysis of political hobbyists and to the extent to which um, the political hobbyists, each of whom sort of exerts out, outsized influence on their own circles because they're the ones people go to and say, hey, you follow politics. Tell me what to think. Uh, how political hobbyists are helping pull us apart more than almost any other cohort of Americans. I'm somewhat fascinated by that as someone who used to run campaigns and has been engaged in civic life and uh, politics in, in various ways throughout my career. I've always wondered, especially lately, why I seem why everyone else seems to take this way more seriously or with such greater importance than I do. And I'm the one almost by nature watching it every day. Right. Well, you know, I think one of the reasons why there are people, and I have that sense as well, you know, aren't you more alarmed? Aren't you more upset about this policy proposal or that policy proposal? And, and I try to explain why I'm not, you know, that there's a difference between concern I can be concerned about something without being panicked about it. And, and people will get angry. Why aren't you, you know, why aren't you more afraid or why aren't you more angry? And I think a lot of it is you have to realize that millions upon millions of Americans are being subjected to a constant barrage of information that says, be afraid, be, be angry. And when they encounter people who, have sort of the same set of basic facts, even though they're not exposed to the same rhetoric. And they say, yeah, that, that worries me. I don't like it, but it's not, it doesn't keep me up at night. There's a disconnect. It, it's, it's funny. Um, when I look back on say the last four to five years and the reaction to my writing, um, aside from, you know, opinions on specific political candidates, what gets people more angry than anything that I write is something that takes the position of, I dislike something or I'm concerned about something, but I'm not 
angry about it or I'm not in a in uh, afraid of it. That 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 gap between concern and an alarm really irritates some folks. That that they they, they urge the alarm, they urge uh, the fear, and often I just don't think it's warranted. You've talked about the uh, catastrophization of the way we talk about politics and elections. Is that is that a symptom of what you were just discussing there, that everything yeah. has to go to 11 all the time if you want to be seen as being serious about it? Yeah. You know, the way I put it, I'm actually uh, what I'm actually alarmed about is the alarmism. And because what the alarmism does is it draws a huge wedge between people. If you think that Joe Biden or Donald Trump is going to destroy our democracy, and even though if you look at their policies, if you look at the checks and balances in place, if you look at the dynamics of American politics and history and how, you know, look, you have a midterms coming up in two years, you know, less than two years after the president is sworn in. We have a lot of checks. We have a lot of balances. It's really, really hard for a, a single president to destroy our democracy, destroy our republic. Um, when you hear that, though, it has an effect on people. It, it makes you more angry at the other side. It makes you maybe sometimes even feel hatred for the other side. There's a lot of data that says that we feel real deep animosity towards the other side. It causes you to sort of take an ends justifies the means kind of approach. How many, how many times have we heard phrases like fight fire with fire? And alarmism, you know, just to take the Flight 93 analogy, this analogy that dominated a lot of commentary on the right and the run up to the 2016 election, which was you got to charge the cockpit or you die. There, this is an emergency. You know, let's take this analogy. Let's say that the plane is shaking and you think the pilot's got a problem. So you charge the cockpit, you choke him to death and you realize, oh, wait, we are just going through turbulence. <laughs> you've got and you've got to land the plane. I mean, this is you know, this is where alarmism can create its own emergency because you create the animosity, you create the hatred and the hatred and the animosity in this country are very real. I mean, we're even moving to a situation where some researchers have called it lethal mass partisanship, where significant minorities, thankfully minorities, believe political violence is justified, but still significant numbers of people believe this or that the world or the country would be better off if a significant number of their political opponents just died, or they ascribe subhuman characteristics to their political opponents. And so this alarmism is creating its own crisis that's different and apart from the alleged policy differences that have created the alarmism. Before we move into some of the scenarios and then potential solutions that you discuss in your book. I want to pull back to institutions for one more moment. We've talked about the uh, atrophying faith in our institutions, the problem that it has caused. Um, there are a few that have still maintained, uh, people have maintained some faith in over time, even as others have lessened. Uh, one of those that strikes me as potentially being troubled as we sit here on November 5th uh, discussing this with still no declared winner in the presidential race, a number of other races still undeclared, a lot of ballots to be counted, is losing, losing faith in the ballot box and in our election process 
itself. Do you think what we're seeing right now could lead to a further erosion of faith in our electoral process? Do you think that's happening? And what will we do about that? I'm worried about it, to be honest. I mean, now I'm I'm worried about it in part because I need to take my eyes off Twitter. (laughs) Um, You know, if you take your eyes off Twitter and you look at this beautiful day out there and people are going about their lives and uh, everything is fine, but you take you look at Twitter and it's a nine alarm fire about irregularities and blah 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 blah. And I, here's what I would say about that: um, we have to pull back from the social media rumor mill. We have to pull back, or even if you're going to look at it because you have to because it's your professional obligation, like it is for me, you have to learn how to read it with a grain of salt. Let's take for example voting irregularities or voting fraud allegations. My simple rule of thumb, which I think is is a good one, is pay no attention to tweets. Pay attention to lawsuits. Lawsuits tend to have to be and contain sworn claims uh, on a case. You know, there are penalties for filing a suit that is patently frivolous. Rule 11 in the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, for example. So if there is if there is a a rumor on Twitter, and it never makes it into litigation, you should pay it no mind. (laughs) There are armies of lawyers who right now are eager, waiting, chomping at the bit to file verifiable, provable lawsuits alleging voting irregularities. If those do not happen, if you do not see that kind of evidence that can be introduced in court, people need to then step back and take a deep breath and perhaps consider that the system's actually working. But we, we do have an awful lot of people, some friends of mine, folks that I know who are ready to file lawsuits if there are verifiable irregularities in any of the swing states right now. And so let's pay attention to sworn claims and admissible evidence and not Facebook and Twitter unless they're attaching PDFs of the sworn claims and verifiable evidence. And that's the best advice that I can give. Uh, I have seen so many smart people who should know better sharing verifiably false rumors um, or in completely unsupported allegations at scale over the last several days. And so I do worry about that because it has an effect. It tells the millions of people who are then watching those same same people talk about it on cable television or hearing them talk about it in radio that there's an emergency, something is going on, something isn't right. But then when you try to dig in to see what the actual evidence is, you know, you're reminded of the old Wendy's commercial, you know, where's the beef? Now you have to be a person of a certain age to appreciate that. (laughs) I want to remind people, if you have questions for David, you can leave them in a couple of places. You can submit them on our Facebook feeds, uh, facebook.com slash Acton Institute, uh, on our live stream at acton.org slash live, or you can email them to us at digital, digital at acton.org. David, the title of your book is Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. Now, secession threat are is pretty stark language, uh, but you we discussed a lot of the nature of our polarization, the nature of our fraying, the nation of our atrophying trust in each other and our institutions. I think we've established that. You also lay out 
two scenarios in the book for what this could look like if we don't head it off. The first one right. is uh, CalExit. Mm-hmm. What does CalExit look like? Yeah, I mean, the, the bottom, so I did use, I thought long and hard about it, and I did use the S word, secession, to describe what happens when a people concentrate in geographic enclaves, large, significant, geographically contiguous political enclaves, who have a distinct culture that's different from their opponents, and believe that culture is under threat, perhaps even mortal or violent threat. Those were the conditions that led to secession in 1776, secession from the British Empire. Those were the conditions that led to secession in 1860, 1861, where the South sought to preserve its slave power uh, and did and tried to do so through secession. And when I was trying to make the cases, we have these large geographically contiguous cultural enclaves that really believe their culture is under threat from rising and often hostile and perhaps what they would deem to be illegitimate power. And so what, you know, I've, I've talked about this for a while. I've, I've given speeches back, you know, when speeches were a thing, <laughs> remember those. Um, and I'd often have people say, well, how, how would this happen? How could this? And so what, that's what I tried to do is in the middle chapters of the book is say, take all these cultural trends, project them forward a few more years. You know, I don't say any of this is imminent or about to happen or anything like that. Take all these cultural trends, project them forward. And then you will see a potential, you can see how um, the wrong kind of leaders faced with the wrong kind of events could help lead to a real, you know, a spark leading to a fire. And in, in the Cal exit scenario, I begin it with some sort of, you know, ripped from the headlines scenarios involving a terrible mass shooting, which leads to an extreme gun control law, which then be- creates a spiral of escalation where no one is smart enough and wise enough to sort of tap on the brakes. And similarly, in the Texas situation, what you have is um, Roe is overturned. There is a court packing in response, which then leads to a, a progressive Supreme Court overreaching dramatically resistance from Southern and Midwestern states and mistakes and missteps and imprudent and unwise leaders throwing gasoline on the flames. And, and this is the kind of thing, you know, I was influenced by um, some historians who the phrase that they've used to describe the Civil War generation and the immediate pre-Civil War generation is, I believe, the bumbling generation or the bungling generation. That was a generation that lacked statesmen. It lacked wise leaders who could help navigate a crisis. Uh, and, you know, do are, are we currently staffed in this country with the political class of statesmen? It's one of the problems that we have is that uh, our political leaders are often a reflection of the, our highly polarized culture and also shape and and help create that highly polarized culture. And so um, the scenarios, I think, are the pivotal part of the book. I mean, if you if you read them and you go, no, no, this is far-fetched, <laughs> then maybe I'm overblown. Uh, but I've had a lot of readers who say, you know what? I was about 10 pages into the Cal exit scenario before I realized, oh, this is fiction. And, and because it felt so real. And, and that, that's, you know, that's what I was trying to do was take a situation and say, look, let's apply all these lessons I talked about in the first part of the book 
about polarization, about geographic sorting, about animosity and enmity against the other, plop them into a near future situation where all of those trends are worse because the trends right now are bad. Nothing is pulling us together more than it's pushing us apart. Plug it in in a, a near future scenario and you can easily see how things can spiral out of control. The second scenario that you present is Texit. Uh, what would that scenario look like? Well, the Texit scenario, uh, really, it's, it's in, in some ways, it's an even more ripped from the headlines kind of scenario than the Cal exit in the sense that what it would project is that there is a um, majority uh, conservative nominated Supreme Court that goes ahead and overrules Roe while there is a majority democratic government in the United States where, where or a democratic president holds the White House and the Democrats hold the House and the Senate even narrowly. And they immediately abolish the filibuster and pack the court in response, which leads to a coalition of Southern states essentially uh, signing a declaration that says we will refuse to acknowledge the legitimacy of any ruling from this packed court, which then puts in motion the collision between federal authority and state autonomy that goes badly, you shall say, in the, as you might imagine in the scenario. Uh, but these things are not, you know, these things are not really far-fetched even within our own time. I mean, there's, um, a, there, there's were a lot of questions at going into the election. What if it looks like Donald Trump is sworn in for a second term after an excessive number of mail-in ballots were disqualified. Should blue state governors resist federal authority? I mean, like these questions were flying in the ether before the election. And so it's rather easy to imagine with this level of mistrust and this level of animosity that a little bit of overreaching here, a little bit of overreaching there, and you've got a crisis. I want to go to some of the questions that we've received. Uh, first from Matthew, what do you see as the best path forward for religious liberty as it comes under greater stress from our low trust political atmosphere? Yeah, you know, it's funny. We, we are in a situation where as a legal matter, just as a matter of the doctrine on the pages of the you know, Supreme Court reporters, we have more religious liberty now as a legal matter than we've ever had in the history of the Republic. Now, the reason why it doesn't feel like that to a lot of people is that also American Christians have less cultural and political power in many ways than they've had at, at, throughout most of the history of the Republic. So th there's a difference between liberty and power. So I'll give you a perfect example from early 20th century. Um, white Protestant America had enormous power in the early 1900s, so much power that they could abolish, they could pass abolition, right? They could pass abolition to abolish the sale and use of alcohol. But did America have religious liberty then? No, Blaine amendments were all over state constitutions, these blatantly anti-Catholic bigoted amendments. So the white Protestant establishment had power, which when you have power, it feels a lot like freedom. But there wasn't liberty in the sense of liberty as a right that you can exercise against power, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. 
And so what we have right now is a dramatic loss of cultural power, but a expansion of religious liberty. Um, and that means that Christians have religious liberty, but they often have to go to court to vindicate it, which is often painful. You know, I've heard that process. The process is the punishment. Um, it's often painful. It's time-consuming. Thankfully, we've got a bunch of fantastic religious liberty nonprofits that mean that most people don't have to pay a lawyer to do it. But um, there are, a, in you know, a rising number of situations where Christians have to go to court when they'd have, never have to go to court before. But their record when they do is sparkling. It's, it's um, you know, it's overwhelming. Uh, now, on the cultural side of things, that's where the answers are less satisfactory. Um, it is absolutely true, specific, especially in certain industries and in certain regions, that the cultural antipathy towards Christians is large and growing. And it's something that is, it takes time to adjust to, to figure out how to respond to. But if it comes to outright anti-Christian bigotry and anti-Christian discrimination, there are a ton of legal tr- tools at your disposal. Our, so we have accomplished a lot of legal missions. We have a cultural mission to accomplish now also. How would you respond to the objection that would say, how much religious freedom do we really have if any time you want to exercise your faith in a public way, you have to go running to a lawyer and a judge to remind others that you're permitted to do so? Well, first, that's not where we are. Um, there is an increasing number of circumstances where you need to do that. Um, but the vast, 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 vast majority of American Christians right now don't have to run to a court and will not have to run to court. And they don't and won't because in their jurisdiction five years ago, somebody did. Um, so I'll give you a good example. I, I litigated in college campuses for about 10 years straight, uh, where one of the key issues on campus was freedom of association, right of access of Christian student groups to campus is one of our issue areas. Well, right now, across the United States of America are that not hundreds, but thousands of Christian student groups operating totally unmolested on college campuses, thousands ministering to hundreds of thousands, if not millions of kids in any given week or month. And they're operating completely unmolested. Well, why is that? Why is that? Is it not because universities suddenly got super hospitable, you know, um, progressive administrators got super hospitable to orthodox expressions of Christianity, though some are? It's that they this issue was litigated. And so one of the great ex- virtues of litigation is there are a lot of downstream benefits that accrue that people... That means that uh, a person doesn't have to go to court and many groups don't have to go to court because one did five years ago or six years ago or seven years ago. So we have to be real careful about what we're talking about is our risk. Our risk is not that everybody has to go to court, but some people will have to. And then that what that means is that a whole lot of other people will benefit from it. Go to a question here from Jay. Can you give us two or three next steps that we can do individually to help curb the tide of deep tribalism? Yeah, man, that's a great question. So here's one uh, concrete step. 
uh, I think you should intentionally seek out um, you should intentionally seek out the best expression of the opposing side's point of view. In other words, the best and most responsible and intelligent voices for the opposing side. There's two reasons why you should do that. One is you're going to learn a lot more. You're going to learn a lot more uh, about what your opponents truly believe by reading their core sources that rather than reading, going into your friendly media and reading the articles that allegedly debunk the, the, your opponents. This is one of the things that kind of drives me crazy about modern discourse is we presume to know what our opponents think by reading exclusively or primarily media that comes from our own side, de describing what our opponents think for the purposes of debunking it. And a lot of that is incomplete, doesn't capture the nuance, sometimes outright deceptive, lots of burning straw man out, straw man out there. So I think that one of the things that's important is to read the best expression of the opposing side's point of view. You're going to learn about them. It's going to humanize them. It's going to make you understand where their actual heart is. Um, the other one is real simple. It is to model the values you seek to advance in American society. And if you want a society that's less polarized, if you want a society that's more civil, that has more decency in it, um, then you have to be more civil and more decent yourself. You have to do your best. And look, I don't, I'm not always great at it. <laughs> you know, we're all imperfect human beings. We all make mistakes and we all lose our temper. But what is the core of what characterizes your public engagement? Are you modeling the values that you would seek to advance? And in modeling the values you seek to advance, you're not surrendering anything. You're not being weak or there's nothing, there's nothing weak about civility. There's nothing weak about decency. I mean, I litigated across the entire United States of America for almost two solid decades. And I don't think I once in two decades engaged in a personal insult against opposing counsel or, you know, I mean, I can't, I can't say that I always comported myself perfectly. Certainly I didn't. Um, but as far as like the core characterization of the way I tried to carry myself was I tried to treat people, even people I was suing with civility and decency and with respect. Um, and the last thing you do to describe litigation is surrender. I mean, litigation is in many ways the most direct form of and the most and the form of political engagement most likely to lead to immediate response and immediate change. And so there's no form of political quote unquote combat that requires you to abandon these core sort of values about how human beings are supposed to respond and interact with each other. I want to come back to something you mentioned in the uh, Calexit and Telexit uh, um, uh, scenarios, which was we've sorted ourselves geographically um, and that we largely live around people who agree with us and we're less encountered within our own community. One, we might argue that we have less of that interpersonal community than we used to. But even in those scenarios where you have a good active church group or bowling league, and you know that, you know, Dave's a Democrat, but I'm a Republican, but you know them on a personal basis. In researching your book, did you discover anything about how we ended up sorting in that way geographically? And, you know, people want to live where they want to live. What can we do about that situation? Well, A, what can we do about it? Basically nothing. <laughs> 
because um, living around people of like mind and living in like-minded communities is one of the most basic fundamental aspects of sort of who we are as human beings. Um, with a society with greater mobility, whether it's mo- and, and greater ability to sort of customize your life, you know what people are going to do? They're going to customize their lives. You know, one of the genius moves that made big tech so big was that even these giant corporations like Google or Amazon, Netflix, whatever, could grant you a highly customizable personal experience. So that when I log on to Netflix, what I see populate that screen could be 100% different than when my daughter logs on to Netflix or when you do it or when you log on to Amazon, when you open your Google app. So what we're, what we're having is people like to avail themselves of things they, people and things that they like. And they tend to like people who agree with them. They tend to like media that, that you know, they're going to find naturally interesting. I mean, you know, look, if my Netflix feed is populated with a giant pile of sci-fi and Will Ferrell, if it started putting like subtitled French films about adultery into the feed, I would probably just say, what, what's Amazon Prime got for me? You know, <laughs> this, is, this is a such a natural human thing to try to live with and to spend time with people of, of like mind and people you have a lot in common with. So what can we do to stop the big sort? I don't, nothing. What can we do to stop the increasing customization of our, of our lives? Nothing. What can we do to accommodate that and make it consistent with and to function within our pluralistic democracy? Many things. So I think that, you know, if you're looking at a sort of a cultural tidal wave of mobility towards like, you know, now I'm, I know there are numbers that say sort of in absolute n- numbers, mobility is down, but sort of mobility to areas of like mind is very much happening or customization of our lives to then say, Netflix, give us all the same thing. You know, these aren't realistic kinds of reforms or stay where you are, even if you're miserable, <laughs> you know, these are not realistic kinds of ideas, but what we can do is rediscover pluralism and decentralize. You know, one of the problems we have is we have a increasingly centralized form of government at the exact same time that Americans are becoming increasingly decentralized in their lives. And at the exact same time, we're becoming more diverse. And so that this centralized government is a more grows more ill-fitting for an increasingly diverse country every day. Before we get to some of the recommendations that you have in your book, Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation, um, I want to give you an opportunity as someone who's listened to your podcast to be very uh, on David French's brand for a moment um, (laughs) and talk about a pop culture item, which I heard you recommend as kind of... uh, what I think you may have said is like the show that we need for this moment, which was um, Ted Lasso on Apple Ted Plus, Lasso. which I just watched with my wife. And you know, to, to show we're being serious about this, there's a major theme of forgiveness of bad actors that runs through this kind of goofy comedy. Um, I, I assume you took the same thing away from it that I yeah. did. Yeah, that's what, you know, it, it is a show. It's funny. It's kind of, you know, it's fish out of water humor. Uh, Jason Sudeikis is just great. Um, But it is a show about 
forgiveness, reconciliation, personal change. I mean, it really is. It's one of these things, these kinds of comedies that you didn't think really could exist anymore, um, which was heartwarming and funny as opposed to sort of like nihilistic and funny. Um, but it's, it's heartwarming and funny. And, and there, there are moments in there that just, there is a moment, I don't want to spoil it, where the visual depiction of sort of the power of forgiveness over the, the awesome power of forgiveness uh, that really was quite moving, you know, and, you know, as, as, in thinking about like the power of Christ's forgiveness and why is it that new converts to Christianity are often like just so wildly enthusiastic, um, you know, that wild, well, that's why we need new converts, not just because it grows the church. It reminds us of the incredible gift of forgiveness and it's just refreshing and renewing power over the human soul. And there's this moment in the, in the show that that becomes sort of, it's not obviously not Christ's forgiveness. So it's one forgiveness person's forgiveness to another for a grave wrong. And it's powerful. It's powerful. And, you know, without that kind of power, without that kind of forgiveness, I don't know how we move forward because the record of grievances that is now piling up between family members, between old friends, um, between online acquaintances is is growing we have if anyone engages in politics these days i bet they can list off three four or five people who've who've wronged them rather dramatically um in their lives and maybe they can say that there are three four or five people that i've wronged and we, we're in this tension we we're having to we have to build towards a point of forgiveness or it will only escalate uh, in our final moments here, what else can you recommend? So we've talked about forgiveness, we've talked about the concept of grace. What else can you recommend to help us chart as a nation a path forward from here that de-escalates rather than continues to escalate as yeah. the, is, is the trajectory that we seem to have been on for, for quite a while now? I mean, you know, my book, I mean, let, let's talk a little bit of policy. My book strongly urges federalism and indeed greater localism. You know, one, one of the problems we have is, um, you know, look, it, it's both a blessing and a curse. I mean, we have gridlock. We have gridlock in Washington. Um, it is very difficult for, and it is very frustrating for the majority that it has trouble exercising its will. Um, it's terrifying often for the minority, the thought that the majority could exercise its will. Um, and these are part of the dynamics that are really tugging at us when the reality is, you know, we have states and local governments that are able to, if they had the authority to respond to the popular will and to build the kinds of communities that respect the values of and advance the values of that community. Now, we do have a degree of federalism, obviously. But what I'm called for in the book is we got to have more of it. We have to have more of it, not a federalism of the Bill of Rights. I mean, every one of the rights are enumerated in the Bill of Rights belongs to all Americans, regardless of state lines. But a much greater liberty and a freedom to say, for example, let California be California and let Tennessee be Tennessee um, a, to de-escalate national politics. We got to get to a point where 
uh, let's look at it this way. Here's what a fundamental alienating fact about American life. Every four years, I'm not going to say every four years, it's the most important election of our lifetime. You know, we only know in hindsight, really, what ended up being the most important elections. But but I will say this is every four years, we vote for the most important, I mean, the most powerful president in this peacetime history of the U.S. Because the executive power, the executive branch keeps accumulating more and more power and more and more power. And so what we have to do is we have to de-escalate that. The president of the United States was not intended, the executive branch was not intended to be the most powerful branch in the U.S. government. It was not. Um, uh, anytime I hear the words co-equal branches, I, somebody should say trigger warning for me because that triggers me. The most powerful branch is the legislative branch constitutionally. It can fire the executive. It can fire the Supreme Court. It can override the executive. But it's now, right now, as a practical matter, the least powerful branch. The one closest to the people of the United States is the least powerful branch. And with the big sword and greater polarization and fewer swing states, I've never cast in my life a meaningful vote for the most powerful man in the world. I've either lived in a deep blue state or a bright red state. That's it. And so it's, it's, that is a frustrating fact of American political life. So we need to decentralize and de-escalate national politics. David French uh, is a senior editor at the Dispatch, a columnist at Time, and a former senior writer at National Review. His most recent book, Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation, was released earlier this year. I want to remind you that copies of David's book, Divided We Fall, are available for purchase in the Acton Bookshop for $19.99 if you visit shop.acton.org. I recommend you check it out. David, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation today. Thanks so much for having me. I really do appreciate it. I want to remind everyone that our next Action Acton Lecture Series event uh, is coming up on Thursday, December 3rd at noon Eastern time. Uh, the title of that is Transformational Leadership in a Time of Crisis. Uh, that will be with Justin Bean, who is founder of the Grand Rapids Center for Community Transformation. Again, that's Thursday, December 3rd at noon Eastern time. You can sign up for that event at acton.org slash events. And you can always visit acton.org to learn more about the Acton Institute, what we're doing and what we have going on. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. Thank you so much for joining us today. To learn more about upcoming and previous Acton Institute events, please visit our website at acton.org slash events. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review and a comment on Apple Podcasts. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. Thank you for listening.